Welcome to One Market, keeping the Laurier-Brantford community connected. I'm Bruce Gillespie. This week, we talk to the people organizing virtual programming for the 4,300 first-year students living off campus, meet the new user experience design professor, and then talk to a student about her job at a tech startup. Plus, the latest installment of Pop Culture Campus, in which we dissect the movie The Social Network with a user experience design student. All that and more coming up on this episode of One Market. Our first guests are Jess Calberry and Mitchell Higgins, who run programming for first-year students who live off-campus through the LOCUS program. I started our conversation by asking them to explain exactly what LOCUS is. LOCUS is an acronym that stands for Laurier Off-Campus University Students, and essentially we're kind of like a a virtual residence. So all of the first-year students who choose not to live in uh, a Laurier residence for whatever reason can join the LOCUS program. And um, they're assigned to a community of other off-campus students uh, based on their academic faculty. So human and social sciences students are placed together, liberal arts are placed together, social work are placed in the same community and same with um, business technology management. And they have a locus Don who is responsible for overseeing the community and kind of being uh, that point person for the students to reach out to and ask, you know, when is the drop date for classes? I'm really struggling with my academics or on the flip side, I'm really nailing my academics and I want to tell you about it um, and kind of just be their, their go-to person uh, during their first year at Laurier. And then also the Dons run a ton of programming um, to kind of help build that sense of community for the off-campus students so they don't feel like they're missing out on the student life at Laurier, even though they could be commuting from just down the road or sometimes we have students who have traveled in from Brampton. So it's really just bringing the sense of Laurier community uh, for the first year off-campus students. I love that idea because, again, I think a lot of this happens organically when you live in a residence building with other folks. But for folks who are commuting in from other places who don't live in residence, this is a great way to, especially in first year, right, meet new people, make new friends, get that sense of community, have some some people to, to touch base with regularly. Yeah, for sure. The students who have joined are, you know, at the end of the year, they're so thankful and they thank their Dons and Mitch and I and the rest of the staff team for, you know, running this type of program because it's not too popular across um, other institutions in Canada. Um, So it's something that's really unique and special to Laurier. Oh, fun. I didn't know that. So clearly most of the programming you guys probably do is probably in person most years. So obviously since March, you've moved all of that online. And and certainly as I was watching and paying attention through March and the summer, um, I was amazed, but but not totally surprised because I know you folks and I know how good you are, but you were doing so much programming right off the bat. It was just, it was amazing to me how how quickly you sort of got off the, the mark, which was just so encouraging. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of programming you've been doing sort of since March and over the summer and sort of the, some of the challenges you sort of ran into having to do it like this for the first time? Yeah, for sure. I can touch on that. I think in a sense, maybe we got lucky. I remember Jess and I talking in January, February, and we had talked about experimenting with some virtual stuff anyway, before the work from home happened and COVID kind of overtook Canada. We wanted to run things like Jackbox because programming is always tricky. And I think everyone's schedules are different and the student time zone um, isn't like a a nine to five or an eight to four or something like that. So we wanted to try out virtual programming anyways to try and meet the schedule needs of a bunch of students. And then March came and work from home happened. 
And we thought, well, this is the perfect time. Like we have to do this now. So we picked everything up and moved it virtually. And I think it went easier than we expected. It was great. Um, we started running a, a locust summer community um, for all students just to give students that sense of community in case they were missing um, their Laurier folks or missing resources on campus just to let students know that we're still here for them during this time. Uh, and it was great. We had a locust summer dawn, uh, Mackenzie, who did a wonderful job in hosting a bunch of programming for students and programming like Netflix, Netflix parties and Jackbox nights, um, MasterChef competitions, trying to balance active programming for students, being on Zoom, interacting with people, and also passive things that they can do on their own time, kind of like social media challenges, trying out different things, ways that we can still engage students virtually. Um, and I think it paid off. And it, it's really great because that was kind of like a test drive for what we're doing now from September through April. Um, and the response has been great so far. And like I said, it was a test drive. And so now we're just going full steam ahead. I wanted to ask you about the response. So what were you hearing from students? What was the, what was the uptake like? It was great. The engagement has been good and attendance. I mean, it always fluctuates, um, but we're happy with it. And we always tell our dons when, you know, they host programming, whether it's in person or virtual, it's, it's not the quantity, it's the quality, right? So even if we make an impact on, five students instead of 50 has still a positive impact but it's been great like we've heard a lot of positive feedback uh, from students um you know thank us for hosting events and engagement and students just continuing week after week wanting to participate and whether it's a, a trivia night or a bingo night um or a master chef competition you know the the turnout is still there so we're going to keep supplying it I love the range of programming you guys are doing. I was sort of following along by Instagram and I was like, every day I was like, oh, this is so much fun. From the MasterChef stuff to the communal game playing through Jackbox. And you were, Mitch, I might get this wrong. You were hosting bingo or trivia or something, right? Yeah, I was hosting bingo throughout the summer, yes. Right, right, right. Well, how was that? <laughs> it, it, it was fun. It, it was um it was definitely a challenge, especially when you had to work through some tech issues week after week, but it was fun. It was something that I did in person, um, you know, when the year was normal and then just picked it up and moved it virtually. And it was great. The response um, was pretty incredible. We had students, we had regulars week after week coming out and I would usually host it over Instagram live, uh, sometimes over Zoom and just got a virtual bingo caller and sometimes switched it up to music bingo and themed bingo and stuff like that. But yeah, it was definitely a fun challenge. That's for sure. That's nice. I didn't realize you, I didn't realize you used to do it in person too. So you're, you're an experienced bingo caller. <laughs> well, some would say. <laughs> He's the suit and tie bingo guy. Uh, so during all of his Instagram bingo hosts, he would like wear full on uh, suit and tie. And I think that's hilarious given that most people are probably working in their sweatpants, but he turned it out every week. Well, and, and why shouldn't bingo be a formal occasion, right? Exactly. <laughs> nice. So presumably you learned a lot from all this experimental summer programming. Um, as you said, it's sort of, it has, um, it's given you a lot of ideas about what to do this fall and winter as we look at a whole academic year being remote. What are your plans uh, for the next couple semesters? Uh, yeah, so it's going to be a busy couple of semesters, I, I'm going to say. It's it's looking very different than um, years past, for sure. Uh, earlier this summer, uh, with the support of the Dean of Students Office, we um, 
decided to waive the traditional registration fee for Locus uh, and automatically enroll all first year off campus students to Locus. Um, so across the two campuses, we're at about 4,300 students right now. Um, wow. Yeah. That's a lot of students. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's a significant growth in a very, very short period of time. Um, so we spent the summer hiring some more Locust Dons. Um, we actually have two house councils on the Waterloo campus instead of one. Um, and really kind of looked at, you know, since the campus lines are very blurred and all online, uh, do we have to keep it just Brantford campus and Waterloo? Are there opportunities to merge the two? Um, so that's been a really fun aspect to our day-to-day lives now. Um, and then, yeah, or orientation week was a couple weeks ago and um, we kind of hit the ground running and did some locust focused events and um, had the students meet their locust on and uh, moving forward all of our programming is online and virtual week we've got um, an an open mic night coming up Uh, one of the dons is doing like a room study space tour which I think is really cool so all of the students can kind of show off their workspace Um, and kind of get ideas on how to stay organized in this virtual environment. Um, We're going to continue on with the Jackbox and the MasterChef. And uh, one of the programmings that was run this past summer was kind of like a group um, run, walk, jog challenge. So um, Mackenzie, our summer dawn, set a goal of 100 kilometers and everyone in the community would kind of work towards reaching that goal of running, walking, jogging. So it was a way to get students outside as well. Um, so yeah, we've just basically taken all of the values that we have of Locus and just shifted it into an online virtual setting with just a ton of different programming. I think that's, again, I, I'm so impressed by the, the range of stuff you guys have been able to do. And it, it really shows your commitment to supporting students who are off campus, especially when there's so many of them this year. Because I mean, that's the, I mean, the vast majority of students are not living residents because there's not really much going on on campus, right? So this will be, a, a, I think, a, a, a different year for for all of us. So it's nice to know that all these kinds of supports and programs are in place to help them feel connected. Yeah, that was one of the most important goals for Mitch and I was that, you know, this is a unprecedented year and I'm sure we're all sick of hearing the word unprecedented, but it is. <laughs> um, so how can we kind of make things as normal as possible for, you know, our upper year volunteers, but the first year uh, students as well. So um, they don't feel like their first year is uh, different from other years. I mean, it is, but we're trying to kind of minimize that gap as much as we can. Mm-hmm. So looking back on all this programming and, and changes that you've had to make since March, what is, what's your takeaway from it? Like, what have you learned from doing your programming this way? A lot so far, I think. Um, I think, honestly, for me personally, I think it shows like nothing's a bad idea. And if you want to take a risk, then just go for it and see what happens. And like Jess said, again, the word unprecedented. We had no idea what we were really getting into. We just had some rough drafts and we thought we need to go with it. You know, the train's coming. You either get on way, like get out of the way or get on board. And so we got on board and went full steam ahead. Um, and it shows that students, they want to get connected to the community, right? They want to get involved in their university and they want to make connections um, and value having a student mentor in place that can help guide them through this. So, um, yeah, I think we just hold our values close and keep them in mind and tackle whatever changes come our way. And, you know, hopefully that leads to success for us down the road too. 
I think that's good advice. Jess, what are you taking away from this so far? Uh, I have honestly been surprised about how many things that we traditionally do on campus can be moved into an online setting. Um, I know Zoom is a very popular platform, but even just to take the, you know, studying in one market uh, with friends and just moving it into Zoom and, you know, still doing you know, your academics and preparing for a project or whatever, but still having that sense of um, camaraderie with other people on Zoom, I think has been really, really kind of neat to see um, students kind of come together that way. And honestly, my biggest piece of advice for anyone who's um, kind of wondering how to start virtual programming is just practice everything. Uh, for I think the first three weeks of March and even leading up to September, uh, Mitch and I would just hop on Zoom or Teams and be like, hey, okay, so what can you see here? Is this working? Like, What's yes. the leg like? Yeah, so it was a lot of trial and error and just kind of figuring out and tweaking um, to kind of make it successful before we introduced it to all of the students. So um, the importance of testing things out, especially in a virtual world, is something that I have taken away and I am maybe a little bit over aware of that. <laughs> well, I think these days it's probably better to be too prepared for whatever might happen as opposed to underprepared. So I think that's I think that's wise advice. Thank you. Thank you for indulging in some of my uh, neurotic tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> Jess Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, thank you for all of the programming you've been providing since March and all the great stuff you have ahead for our students who I, I know will really um, uh, take advantage of your programming and really get a lot out of it. So thank you for all you and your staff are doing. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so pumped to be a part of this and uh, I love listening to the podcast each week. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Our next guest is Umer Raymond. Umer is a new assistant professor in user experience design who started the job July 1st, so we thought this would be a good chance to introduce him to the Laurier Brantford community. I started by asking him to tell us a little bit about his academic background. So I actually come from an engineering background. I finished my PhD in systems design engineering, uh, but a lot of the work that I've done naturally pertains to uh, human factors, cognitive ergonomics, user experience design. And I was a lecturer here um, on contract basis and then ended up um, getting selected for the tenure track position. And then I joined uh, Laurier. So that's my brief story. <laughs> <laughs> that actually works out really well. So it's nice that you've had um, some in-person face-to-face exposure to the campus and students before starting your full-time gig here in July when you won't have a chance to see anybody face-to-face for well, probably a long time. Yes, it's actually, it's like, um, you know, very... Uh, you know, pandemic is like very troubled times for us. Uh, I hope like the pandemic dies down soon. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, at least I'm happy to join Laurier. That's great. Yeah. What were your impressions of our students in our campus when you were able to see them in person? It was great, actually. Um, since I was involved with the teaching two courses uh, prior to joining, um, I had a lot of uh, good memories with them. And then when I was giving my job talks, I actually got to go to different other campuses as well. Um, but it was something striking about Branford. It was just the sense of ownership and you walk in and just the, you know, the, uh, the liberal arts environment. Uh, and I actually fell in love and decided to join Laurier Branford. That's great. So can you tell us a little bit about your research interests? I'm, I'm surprised to hear that you have an engineering background. I wouldn't have expected that. So I'm curious to see how the, like what the overlap is between user experience design and engineering is. 
Yes. So user experience design is very interdisciplinary. Uh, There's a joke that goes around it. We're not just interdisciplinary. We are anti-disciplinary just because we belong to different kinds of factions. Uh, User experience design uh, actually pertains to designing technology that's usable, uh, that has a good user experience. And you need expertise from uh, the technology side, but also from many other disciplines such as psychology. And uh, user experience design is in the Faculty of Liberal Arts here. Um, The user experience design research is conducted in many other universities in uh, engineering, in psychology, uh, even in business schools. So it's a, it's a mix of, you know, different kinds of disciplines. And one of the things is that we try to not associate ourselves with one particular, uh, you know, faculty or area of research, um, just because uh, we feel like that kind of limits our research methods that we apply in the field. So it's uh, really interdisciplinary and actually it's um, it's good that uh, we're in the Faculty of Liberal Arts just because we get that uh, unique ideas from liberal arts because liberal arts is all about embracing different kinds of, you know, challenges. And um, so that's something good about uh, Faculty of Liberal Arts. Absolutely. And I think it's exciting for students to be exposed to um, in these kinds of interdisciplinary faculties and programs to, for them to be exposed to a range of, of professors with different disciplinary backgrounds, different sort of ways of doing research, different sort of contexts for thinking. I think that that must make for more exciting classes too. Uh, yes, actually the conversations in the classes, uh, uh, you know, the students bring in their own uh, kind of knowledge, which is really enriching for some of the professors too. And it has been a, a bit of a, you know, good, I would say a learning curve uh, for me as well, teaching in liberal arts classes, but it has been a very enjoyable one. I've really, uh, you know, uh, had a good time. So, so that's about it. So what are you teaching class-wise this year? So right now I am uh, teaching interaction design, which is um, a second year course, but I'm also developing a research methods course um, that's going to be offered next year. Uh, My interests pertain to immersive computing devices, uh, immersion, augmented reality, virtual reality, and how we can kind of improve experiences for these next generation wearable devices. So that's what my areas of research are. And uh, I applied research methods from many different disciplines. This includes uh, some of the stuff that comes out from psychology, but also from uh, human factors, which is partially engineering and partially engineering psychology. Engineering psychology, that's fascinating to me as a journalism professor. I, ne- I never thought those two things would go together, but, but it makes sense, I guess, especially if you're thinking about immersive kinds of technologies that you'd both want to have an understanding of. Uh, like a mechanical understanding of how the technology works, but also the understanding of how people respond to it and use it. Yes, I think one of the biggest dilemmas with technology currently is that um, while we have kind of made a lot of progress in terms of like the technical aspects, uh, in terms of the human aspects, we really need to have an understanding of how humans, you know, kind of perceive information, how the brain physiology works and uh, some of the inner nuances, which are very hard for some of the folks in technology to grasp. So I think this is where all the interdisciplinary background comes into play. And uh, it's it's just really exciting to see that while we're making uh, a lot of uh, progresses in terms of designing technology, we're also looking at things from the human factor standpoint, making sure that it's usable, it's friendly, it's engaging, it's not frustrating to use. You mentioned you're working on a, a new research methods course for UX. Given that it is such an interdisciplinary field, how do you how do you put a research methods course together when when you could be drawing from so many different places? Does it just become a one giant course? 
Yes, it does become <laughs> one giant course. One of the things that we try to do is that um, we try to make sure that the students have the practitioner's knowledge that they need. And um, uh, for instance, like I know some students who don't really have a background in deep statistics, so we're not going to go into those statistics methods, right? But we're just going to give them that overview that they need to kind of succeed in terms of getting a job and then succeeding in the workforce. Uh, other than that, uh, there's a lot of stuff that we borrow from, um, uh, from psychology and from other disciplines, even like communications. One of the things that we teach students is uh, interviews and observations. Now, mm. this is not very common in engineering or very technical backgrounds, but it's uh, th- this kind of comes in from uh, liberal arts and science backgrounds. So uh, so uh, while students might find some aspects of uh, the research methods course challenging, there are other aspects which they would kind of be already introduced to in many other classes that they've taken. So it's not that big of a deal. Um, one of the things that I realized with our students um, uh, in user experience design is that they do you know, learn a lot of different methods in other courses. And by the time that they've uh, end up taking research methods, they already have like a good solid foundation. And then they can, you know, kind of advance those research methods and go and apply them in the field. No, oh, that makes sense. Yep. I love that you're teaching them interviewing as a, as a journalism professor. Interviewing is one of the, the main things I teach. And I think it's uh, part of, one of the things I really like about teaching in this faculty of liberal arts is that we have journalism students and digital media students, but criminology students and UX students, and, and lots of people could do take these courses. So it's fun to be able to teach those those kinds of skills to a broad range of people. But I think I think interviewing is something that everybody should learn at the undergraduate level. I think it's a really good life skill to be able to ask questions, follow up to what someone's telling you, and try to understand and sort of get them to expand on their experiences. It's So I'm, I'm glad to hear we're not the only ones teaching that kind of stuff. No, absolutely. You'll be surprised that in a lot of the graduate courses that I've taken at Waterloo, University of Waterloo, that's where I did my PhD from, interviewing was, uh, we had like full courses on just interviews. So it's it's a very important and really critical research method. Absolutely. So how are you finding the remote learning uh environment so far this is new for most of us i think how are your classes going so far um they're going um, great so far uh the students have adapted well uh the only thing is that um, you know when i when you're in the class you can actually see your students you know see what they're up to um you get more responses because you can just you know cold call put them on the spot uh with remote learning this can you know kind of uh, become a little bit of a challenge uh having said that i think the students um, they're doing well in terms of you know still contributing to uh classes despite be- being you know, remote. Um, yeah, so it's going good overall. Well, Amer, welcome again to Laurier. I hope you have a successful first year and we look forward to talking to you again at some point. Thank you very much, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Our final guest is Michaela Ferrero, a user experience design student in her final year of the program. She has a really interesting job working at a tech startup in Kitchener-Waterloo called Monogram. So we asked her to tell us about it. But I got this job back in January of last year, and we're a tech startup based out of Kitchener-Waterloo, and we create modular uh, controllers for your kind of post-production editing needs. So we work, um, we create the hardware and the software right in office, um, and then of course our factories as well in China. But basically we have these controllers that allow you to have fine motor controls over certain elements of Photoshop or InDesign or applications like that. Um, So with APIs, we actually do have direct integrations with majority of Adobe software. 
And we have dials and sliders and buttons that allow you to, we map our controllers to the software. And then you're able to actually turn the dial and that would adjust something like your brush size if you were using Photoshop. So for folks who don't use this kind of software, this sort of design software on a regular basis, this is something you would use instead of just the mouse that came with your computer. Exactly. Yeah. So it allows for a better precision than a mouse and it kind of helps with your, you know, the dexterity of your hands and the comfort of your hands if you're working on big projects. It makes it a little bit easier than having to navigate the mouse. Which, which totally makes sense to me. I don't use this kind of software a lot, but I use it regularly enough to know that um, the mouse drives me crazy. Between, yeah. <laughs> between like the mouse and trying to switch to different kinds of uses, it's, it's really irritating. So having something that would actually make that easier and quicker and more efficient makes complete sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the, the goal of the, the product that um, the CEO created. And... Yeah, we have like profiles that you can use. So basically the way that works is you would map it for different elements of what you're doing within whatever application you're using. So like you said, if you're doing different use cases and one day you're editing or one day you're doing something different within Photoshop, you can actually switch right with your controller through the different profiles, through the different uh, functions as well. So that way, a lot of times you don't have to go back in and completely restart every time you want to work on a new project. That's a great idea. Mm -hmm. So what's your role at the company? So I'm a customer success lead. So even though it might not necessarily seem super related to user experience design, the customer experience is definitely one of the front end uh, elements of being a user experience designer. So while I'm there, you know, of course, I handle some of the IT support concerns. And then basically my job is to take that information to help the user to work through their problem and then to take any of that Uh, feedback and bring that to our software or hardware teams and then be able to kind of close the circle and close the gap Mm. and be able to provide um, future experience updates uh, based on whatever the issue may have been in that that instance. That must be an interesting role to sort of be that liaison between customers using the product and the folks who are designing it who obviously have a very different understanding of what that product is or how it should be used, right? Because there's always this disconnect between someone who makes the product and has envisioned it from scratch versus the end user who's just trying to make it work for their specific unique purposes. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's really nice about it is we have such specific use cases sometimes depending because even if you're not using it in something like an integrated app like Adobe, we actually allow you to use um, like a joystick, a MIDI and a keyboard mode within our application. So you can actually use it for you know anything you're doing. Um, so it's really unique that through perspectives of, you know, our customers and what they might use it for, we've been able to better develop the product for them as well. So it's been, it's rewarding that way. And then to be able to see, because we're a smaller team, we keep a really good connections with our users. So I know that they really appreciate having their insights be brought into our, our new developments of the product as well. So it's a, it's a really cool opportunity to be able to learn on my end, the more technical side of things, while also being an advocate for, for the users. Sure. And I w- would presume on top of that, being able to put everything that you're learning about user experience design at school into practice. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's been really unique because sometimes people think that, you know, UX designers simply focus on, on website design. And that's not that's normally not the case. There's quite a bit of variety in what we can work on. And this is definitely one part. So even though the title itself might not be super related, it's really unique to be able to take those skills of design thinking and empathy and be able to put that into customer support and bettering a product through the front end. 
And I mean, as a customer, I would assume that makes a big difference. I mean, I know when I, you know, talk to tech support people or talk to people who are building things that I use. Um, I mean, that empathy piece is a big piece. It's like, I really want to, I want to feel like the person on the other end of that phone or the video chat is sort of hearing the frustrations in most cases that I'm having with a product as opposed to just, I'm writing this down, I'll send it to some coders and maybe it'll get fixed. Like, who knows? Like, having someone actually wants to understand how I'm using something and why it's not working for me, I think is really important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It really, you know, enhances brand loyalty. It enhances the overall customer experience. And, you know, if there does happen to be an issue with the product that you're not necessarily happy with, if you have good support and good communication, it definitely makes that experience a little bit better than having, unfortunately, something go wrong and then not having the proper support or personalization to get that resolved. Right. How has your work changed since the pandemic? Uh, at first, it was a bit interesting to navigate over to you know, working from home. Personally, I found it a bit difficult at the beginning to, to somehow divide my personal life and my work life and my school life, um, all while being under the same roof. Um, What are we probably about five, six months now into the pandemic and things definitely have been able to, I've been able to get onto a better routine. Thankfully, based on what we do and based on my job, it, it was a pretty smooth transition otherwise. Um, because a lot of what I'm doing is just email communication. So that part's been quite nice to change over to home. That's great. The other thing we wanted to ask you about was you were working on a research apprenticeship last semester, and you were working on a paper about um, ethics and the use of AI. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So originally when I went into the research apprenticeship, I was kind of just generally exploring you know, how humans, like how that relationship is going to be developed between humans and AI. And it's less about, you know, the sentient AI that we experience in some science fiction movies about them (laughs) taking over and more about, you know, our, our Google devices or Amazon Alexas and items like that. Um, And being able to understand how that relationship works, whether we trust them or not. And I know that depending on what goes out in the media or how it's being portrayed in pop culture, it definitely has an influence on the way that we react or want to include these items in our home. And even with that, even if we are able to trust them, is that trust based on something, you know, is it based on um, a complete understanding about the technical Um, (laughs) advantages and usage of the device itself and understanding that. And through the research that a lot of it was, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were discussing with work where, you know, it's different when you're the user and it's different when you're on the back end creating it, your understanding of the products are very different. And a lot of times with these products, people, the way that things are explained are not necessarily done in the most mainstream way. Sure. Um, so the research I kind of took a look at was how do we kind of close that gap and how can we use, you know, heuristics and user experience design principles to be able to design systems like AI systems that are more human friendly and more trustworthy in order to have them be able to be safely introduced into our lives. So everyone has kind of a general understanding of what they're getting themselves into with certain products because we use AI in different capacities every single day without even knowing it. Um, and sometimes it can cause, you know, there, there are potential threats and risks and without knowing the, the scope of what it is, it's hard to trust what you're bringing in. But if the language itself is written for experts, then unfortunately it's not quite accessible to the rest of the world who are the users of this product. 
Right. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking here of all those sort of terms of service you 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 know are supposed to read, but probably don't every time you download <laughs> a new piece of software, right? Yes. With AI, right, there's a whole set of, you're probably getting the same kind of terms of service, but it's probably even more important to think through exactly what you're doing and what it's sharing and recording and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And not only just being transparent about it, but also being, again, human and being relatable. Because that's the other thing too, if it's written in a way that you don't have a con, like you don't understand the context or the way that it could be used, then it loses its value and its meaning. Hmm. That's fascinating. Is there a lot of research about sort of ethics and AI out there already, or is this sort of like a, a burgeoning new kind of field? There's definitely a lot out there in terms of how do we go about regulating and, mm. and, and enforcing ethics because culturally ethics looks very different. Um, but something like AI is so widespread and so universal, at um, almost universal at this point, that there has to be some sort of foundation. And, you know, how much regulation do you put in? Do you make it something that is government regulated? Do we keep it on the public market? So a lot of questions like that are what's being explored at the moment um, in terms of research and how to go about um, being able to create laws that are universal to keep everyone safe. Mm. That's so interesting. We are lucky to have user experience designers like yourself working on behalf of humans to try to <laughs> make this stuff easier to understand and use. Yeah, definitely. As a human myself, I definitely appreciate when things are understandable and simple, especially when they have such um, an impactful um, consequence on the world. For sure. Mm-hmm. That's great. Michaela, thank you so much for telling us about some of your work today. Of course. Thank you for having me, Bruce. And now it's time for another segment of Pop Culture Campus. With more information, here's our co-producer and co-creator, Tara Brookfield. So this episode, we're going to talk about The Social Network, which is a fairly popular film that came out in 2010, looking at the origins of Facebook, um, told through the perspective of Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook, although the film looks at the contention about, was he, for example, the sole creator? It's set at Harvard University, and I thought that would be an interesting pop culture portrayal of Harvard to compare to our our own campus. And one of the reasons we invited Michaela was as a student with sort of expertise in social media, as well as her UXD sort of background, I was really curious to see how a student would view this film to see both in just how it portrayed higher ed um, at the time, as well as sort of the role social media plays in a student's life, sort of in the post-Facebook world. Michaela, had you seen the film prior to our podcast? I actually have not. Um, So this was my first time watching it, and I watched it a few times. And it definitely was interesting watching it now, considering all the information that we do know about Facebook. And, you know, even in 2010, that would have been you know, about 10 years ago, and I was quite a bit younger. So I had a different perspective, of course. Um, So it was interesting with my background now looking in at the movie. Michaela, was there anything about it just in general that the portrayal of the school backdrop to the story? So it starts off with, with Mark Zuckerberg as a senior student at Harvard University. And then it sort of transitions to his more professional life. But for the scenes that did take place at the school, was there anything you felt that you could relate to about life at university yeah definitely the kind of beginning part where he's having some of the drama with his his girlfriend um those kind of things definitely happen as a student and definitely happen on campus bars quite frequently 
Um, at least from my perspective, I've seen things like that. So that kind of social element where you have some of the discourse between students, that part felt um, fairly relatable uh, considering my university experience. Unfortunately, um, Ivy League, I mean, at least the portrayal in the film, um, does it doesn't quite relate well to what we have here in, on our campus in Brantford. We have kind of a, quite a bit of a smaller campus. It's definitely more of a homey feel. Um, so I definitely, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg is running across campus, we definitely don't have those pressures quite as much to be running and chasing our classes um, as we're quite a bit smaller. Um, so yeah, I, I felt like you could definitely feel the difference between the campus size and how that reflects on your overall experience because there definitely was more opportunity, um, I guess, in the film and in his experience to have some of those um, moments again where you're chasing your classes and running late and, you know, doing things like that. I visited the real Harvard University campus before. So even though this is, we're looking at a interpretation of Harvard for the film, you're right, it's very sprawling. There are those literally ivy covered walls and lots of green space. Although it is also an urban campus, so it is right in sort of a fairly urban center of Boston. So there's, I guess, that small similarity to being sort of an urban campus as well. Mm -hmm. Bruce, was there anything that stood out to you as familiar? I mean, to Michaela's point, certainly the, the, there wasn't a whole lot about the setting that, that struck me as familiar. Um, Harvard is obviously quite different than Laurier Brantford. And I didn't actually realize it was an urban campus. So that's interesting. I haven't been there in person. so. But the one thing that struck me as sort of familiar was... Even though in the movie when he's creating Facebook in the beginning to sort of as a way to rate women, which is obviously gross, um, the idea that, that I think popularizes Facebook is this idea that students wanted to connect with each other. And I think we can still see that on campus. I think students at, at universities, big or small, are always wanting to find new ways to connect with each other and meet people, right? I think that's especially true probably these days when so few of us are actually on campus and we're trying to figure out um, remote ways to to meet each other and sort of build a sense of community. Yeah, absolutely. And I've also noticed that most campus clubs, a lot of it runs through Facebook anyway. So it's definitely a good way to keep everything kind of connected um, in a centralized location. And it de Facebook definitely does that right. Now, one of the questions we asked when we did introduce a segment for the first time, we were comparing experiences of university with a sitcom community, which had you know, sort of really leaned into fantasy and and unrealistic scenarios for com comedic efforts. This is a much more straightforward drama. Was there, and because our experiences are different from Harvard, was there anything that you could pick up on as maybe being not realistic? I definitely would say the non-realistic element of this movie was the portrayal of the quote-unquote nerds. I felt like, unfortunately, painting him as this socially almost inept, possibly um, sociopathic, misogynistic um, gentleman, maybe for the film and the dramatization of that, that was necessary. But I feel like in the real life of the university, that's not necessarily the, the portrayal of, again, quote unquote, nerds. And that's definitely something I've learned, I guess, being more in, the, in a tech-focused program that the pop culture portrayal of what, you know, someone in science and technology looks like is not necessarily a portrayal of who they actually are in real life. And sometimes that can create a little bit of a, a blur when you're trying to merge everybody into different groups in a university setting and people have a little bit of a misrepresentation of what certain groups of kids look like. 
That's an excellent point. It certainly didn't have a lot of empathy for his character. I think that was even one of the points they later made in the lawsuit that you're going to lose because no one likes you. Um, But yes, in terms of it, it sort of was a cliche in some sense and presenting that that was connected to his interests and what might've been particularly in 2000, uh, the early 2000s, like as, as something less mainstream. Can you tell me about the scenes in which he's hacking into the university system and coding very um, quickly? Is that something you could do with that speed or was that maybe unrealistic for Hollywood sort of portraying it so quickly? Right, so if we wanted to hack into the university system, <laughs> could we do it at the same speed? Yeah, great question. I like yeah. it. I'm <laughs> uh, sure not to give direct tips on how to do that. Um, unfortunately, myself, that's not too much of my forte. I definitely have friends who have some of the capabilities, and I wouldn't necessarily say what that that scene probably lasted. You know three to five minutes, that's definitely not going to occur. But it's possible overnight, depending on your skill level, that you might be able to do something like that, depending on, you know, the security protocols of the system. Okay, interesting. I'll take very careful notes and uh, get back. (laughs) (laughs) But it's fascinating, Tara, as you said, to look back at this movie now, 10 years on, um, like technology has changed so much, right? I mean, it's the, the way the technology has changed and sort of even the speed of which they were coding or the kind of the, the, the kind of coding they were doing. It seems, it seems like such a, it seems so different today, I guess. Like things have changed so quickly. And I think, so I, I read that the, the film was directed by David Fincher and written by Aaron Sorkin. And I read that Sorkin is considering writing a sequel that would sort of bring us to Facebook sort of near 2020 and sort of how both social media, but particularly that particular social media has uh, encountered many different challenges in relation to privacy and selling information. But even so you could see some of the origins of that sort of invasion of privacy from, from its origins in this film. The other thing that struck me watching now, certainly compared to, to what I think I see around me, at least, is that um, there are so few women portrayed in that sort of tech field. And, and I know, obviously, the tech field is still highly male-dominated, but it seems to me that um, there are probably more women involved in tech than there were at the time. Michaela, I don't know if, that, if you have any sense of that or not. Um, it's, definitely, it's definitely growing. Um, I, I would say that there's still, there's still some work to do to get women um, efficiently um, kind of put into the tech industry, depending on what part of the tech industry you're focusing in on. I know that there are a lot of times where there are drop rates in more tech, tech predominant programs. So you'll start off your first year with a decent amount of women in, you know, a, um, a STEM program. Uh, and then the drop off rate definitely does increase. I definitely, um, like in my program, for example, I would say that we're a pretty fair number of women to men. Our ratio is quite nice there. Um, but I find that sometimes more in the technical elements, like when you're in computer science, there are definitely the portrayal of women and the amount of women in those that are involved is definitely a little bit less than men. Hmm, interesting. It's also interesting because I read a little bit about the behind the scenes in making the film. Many of the female characters are actually invented. Uh, oh. Are there composite characters of, of people maybe Zuckerberg and his fellow students interacted with? And some of that was done, I think, to maybe respect the privacy, particularly of perhaps the girlfriend who got that um, quite misogynistic blog post written about her. But I think it was also maybe an effort to create some 
female representation in the film that maybe didn't exist in these particular corridors that, um, at least in Harvard, the students were interacting in. Right. One more thing I wanted to ask before we sort of ended the segment was the representation of clubs. So the, the film opens in which the um, in which Zuckerberg is desperate to get into one of Harvard's um, final clubs. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about, you know, which one could I get into and the prestige and the networking that's going to be opened up with it. And, it, and he sort of immediately jumps on anyone that, that has that opportunity and he doesn't get in. And I mean, that's such a different club scene from Laurier Branford. I'm wondering, Michaela, are you in any clubs? And can you talk about what club life is like here at Laurier Branford? Yeah. Uh, so this year I'm not in, uh, in any clubs, just as I'm in my kind of my fifth year here and just have a little bit of outside responsibilities. But over the years, I have been part of different clubs. So I was part of our UXD student association. Uh, definitely the more the merrier is more of our kind of motto for clubs here in Laurier Branford. We're definitely not as restrictive of who can come in and out. Um, so it's definitely more of an inclusive environment as opposed to being incredibly competitive, um, which is definitely something that, in my opinion, is a lot better as a student. I'd rather have more people part of a club. Um, that makes the overall experience a lot nicer than having to create competition between students that may not be necessary. One of the things I wanted to end with was a quote that some of the students who are interested in Facebook becoming an actual existence there's a quote in the movie where they say, well, it recreates the social experience of college, but now it's online. And watching that now in 2020, I felt it ironic since our entire college experience right now is online. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like I imagine the opposite is desired, that idea to have some face-to-face contact. I would agree. I mean, and I think that the further along we go in this year and you know, through sort of pandemic lockdowns and whatnot, I think more people will be sort of craving those face-to-face connections in all walks of life, not just in school, just because we're spending so much time behind screens and at home and trying to do our part to to not socialize like we probably would normally do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think, I mean, within the past 10 years, we definitely, that was something that was wanted. But we, I, I find at least for my generation, we're slowly trying to find alternatives to the online world. And like you mentioned, we kind of have no choice at this point, but to do most of our experiences online considering the pandemic. But this is definitely pushing people to spend more time outside, to spend more time connecting and having some of those um, quote unquote real human interactions again. Um, Social media imbalance to our lives is definitely an additive, but it's definitely something that we're starting to crave less of and we're craving more of that human connection. Thanks, Tara and Michaela. On the next installment of Pop Culture Campus, we'll be talking about the movie Legally Blonde with one of our Laurier Sussex students. Stay tuned. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. We hope it's helped you feel a little more connected to the Laurier Brantford community. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends and colleagues. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Worried about missing an episode? Sign up for our newsletter. You can find the link on Twitter and Facebook at OneMarketLB. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. One Market was created and produced by Bruce Gillespie and Tara Brookfield. Music by Scott Holmes. Graphics by Melissa Weaver. And a special welcome this week to our research associate and intern, Serena Austin. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch.